We have been uh, looking at butterflies for a couple weeks. Just because of the analogy that that whole process is for us as humans and as people that God is working in our lives. From uh, such an amazing caterpillar to start with to become that butterfly and that whole process of transformation. And yet the concept that that butterfly in its um, origin and design is present back there in the caterpillar. But God has to help that transformation happen. And that's really what we are looking at in this whole sermon series of Becoming Me. Becoming the person that God intended us to be, becoming that masterpiece that he is creating us to be. The challenge that we face, and I think a lot of us feel, is that we don't always feel like we are that butterfly. Uh, it's a lot easier to identify with a cocoon. And uh, we're inching our way along some branch. Uh, and in the process, probably more afraid of being stepped on than figuring out how we're in the world we're going to become this butterfly. It struck me that a lot of times I think we our thinking is a lot more like Elijah than it is the butterfly. And I want to go back for just a second to introduce our topic today and look at this one incident in Elijah's life. The passage that I want us to look at is in 1 Kings uh, 19, but I need to set the stage uh, before this event happens because at this point Israel has really been led away from God to worship uh, an idol named Baal because of the wicked Queen Jezebel. And they have bought into this lock, stock, and barrel, and Elijah is, uh, as far as he can see, the only person left who still stands for Jehovah. And he has been hunted down, the government is out to kill him, the queen is out to kill him. He is a wanted man with a price on his head. And he finally sort of throws down the gauntlet and says, okay, let's find out who's really God here. And they have this um, face-off up on Mount Carmel. And Elijah invites them to bring in all the prophets of Baal, and they try and do this sacrifice on this altar and have their God burn it up. And, of course, nothing happens. And so then Elijah makes his altar and his bull and actually drenches it with water and then calls on Jehovah. And, of course, God consumes the cow, the water, the wood, even the rocks. And out of that powerful demonstration of God's power, all of us, Elijah included, would say, yes, we've done it. And the people rise up and they kill all the prophets of Baal. And you'd think at that point, it's the day after the Super Bowl, and we're just celebrating. But that's nothing further than the truth. And it's fascinating what happens after that for Elijah. And that's this passage. So look with me at 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 2. So Jezebel, and this is the wicked queen who is committed to Baal, sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, her prophets who'd been killed. Elijah was afraid, ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba down in Judah, he left his servant there, 
And while he himself went a day's journey on out into the wilderness, we're talking the Negev Desert, that just desolate, he came to a broom bush and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. There's no way to escape the fact that Elijah felt defeated. He was discouraged. He had thought he had won a great victory for God, and evil was right there. It wasn't gone. Baal wasn't defeated. Jezebel wasn't defeated. He was still hunting her down. She was still hunting him down. And the more he thought about that, the more discouraged he got. And he just went off into the desert under a bush and said, just let me die. It's a fascinating picture of a great man of God and how his thinking took him to a place we never could imagine he would be. And that's what we want to talk about today. The power of our thinking for good or for ill to take us to a wonderful place where God wants us or to take us away from where God wants us. It is an integral part of this process of opening ourselves up to God in what we think about in our minds. Elijah didn't fix himself. Go home and read the rest of the story. God heard Elijah. He saw him where he was in his discouragement and in multiple ways came and met Elijah's needs and lifted him up from his discouragement. God did that because Elijah was God's masterpiece. God was working in Elijah's life just like we've been talking about. He wants to work in our lives. Because we've looked at that passage in Ephesians 2.10 that says we are God's masterpiece. We're his work project. He wants to make something unique and wonderful out of each one of us. And that's why we come to God. Many of us have tried to do it on our own. And we end up like Elijah under a bush. Discouraged. And we realize that we need God to paint this picture. We need God to drive our lives. We need to let him hold the paintbrush. And that's what we've been talking about. And and we've looked how God does that and that he uses a variety of things. His spirit is in us, working in us. And we've looked at that whole process or this puzzle of the different pieces that God uses, and we're working our way around those in this sermon series. He starts at our core, in our spirit, at our deepest pieces of what we're about and where we're headed and who's in control and giving God control, but he comes as his spirit in us and works at our deepest level. But it's time today to go to that next step because he doesn't just work there. He works in our minds as well and our thinking. And that's that next step in this process. That's part of this transforming that we want to talk about. 
One of the first passages I'd like to look at today is in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Especially verse 2, but I want us to read verse 1 also. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does the butterfly process happen, that transforming happen? By the renewing of our mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good pleasing, and perfect will. But that flows out of that renewing process where we think differently. Our mind is central. I want to share with you a paraphrase of this passage that I think is just great. And it's from the message. And I want to read it, but just so it really soaks into you, I copied and pasted it on the screen as well. So as I read along, this is a paraphrase of that Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Let him paint. Let him drive. Now, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. That's the worship He wants, and it's the best thing you can do for you. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. I just love how Peterson in this paraphrase talks about that opening ourselves up to God. And when we do that, we find out that God brings the best out of us. Whereas when we listen to all the junk around us, all it does is tear us down and take us to places where we are worse off than we were. And our thinking is the key to that. Nothing else is going to work. And we need to admit that and do the harder work inside. We usually start on the outside. We say, well, I want to be different. I know God wants me different. We focus on our hands, what we're doing. Uh, We focus on our feet, where we're going. We focus on our mouths, what we're saying. Somehow those externals seem easier to deal with, and we make rules about them. But if we don't deal with that inner thinking, None of the other changes really stick or really matter. 
I can't just act like a butterfly. I have to think like a butterfly. I don't think the difficulty in this issue is understanding that concept or believing it. The difficulty is changing it. If if we say, okay, Jim, I, I, I'm with you. I want, to, I want to change my mind. I want to transform my thinking, as Paul says. How in the world do we do that? Well, there's three areas that I want us to look at today. How we change our thinking. Um, part of it is accepting the fact that we do need to change our thinking. That I can't become the person I'm supposed to be the person God is trying to make me into, if my thinking looks like everybody else is thinking in my neighborhood, everybody else is thinking at work, if I don't do any work in here to think differently, I'm not going to be in a different place and become that person God wants me to be. That's the first step, and it's a huge step. But it is taking that challenge of Paul seriously that says, I can't conform. I can't be like everybody else in my thinking. And that's, in a sense, that's the first step. Part of that is getting to the fact, then, that we need to ask ourselves, how are we thinking? Is my thinking good or bad? Is my head where it should be or where it shouldn't be? We have to face that reality. David says an interesting thing in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. That's a pretty challenging concept to say, God, come on in. I want you to check out my thinking. And we hide that, don't we? we? We don't want our friends to know what we're thinking. I sure don't want God to know. But you see, if I'm serious and say, I want to think differently, I know my thought life needs to go a different direction, then we have to reach the point David did. And David clearly made mistakes in his life and allowed his mind to go in wrong places. And it caused huge problems in his life. And I think it was out of that that he realized he's no more playing games. God, I'm no axe here. I want you to come in and examine my mind. And see if there's some thoughts there that shouldn't be there. You see, thinking is so much the issue. It's not our circumstances. We can take the same circumstances and think and use our minds in good ways about them or bad ways about them. In Ortberg's book, The Me I I Want to Be, he has this cute illustration of dogs and cats and how they have the same situation but they think very differently about them. Uh, Here's a dog's diary. I don't know if you can read that. 8 a.m., dog food. Aha, my favorite thing. Uh, 9.30, a car ride, ah, my favorite thing. 9.40 a.m., a walk in the park, my favorite thing, all the way down. 3 p.m., wag my tail, my favorite thing. Milk bones, my favorite thing. Until 11 p.m., sleeping on my bed, my favorite thing. What a great day. How could you not love dogs? 
Now here's a cat's diary. Day 983 of my captivity. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. Same day, but they thought very differently about their day. That is a huge light bulb that needs to go on for us. I don't need the perfect circumstance. I don't need the perfect day. I don't need the perfect externals. How do I think about it is the issue. And that's such a huge factor we need to face. We need to choose what we fill our minds with. Paul challenges us on that. Turn over to Philippians 4.8. See, I think, I love this verse before we read it because I think a lot of times what we sit here and we think is, okay, then, Jim, what you're saying I should do is, all I should do is walk around all day every day thinking about God. And maybe you say, I'm going to go out of here and do that. Well, that's probably not going to last very long. But Paul says that's not the issue. Read what he says here in 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. That's what you fill your mind with. That which is good and uplifting. There's a lot that fits in that verse. There's a lot of beautiful things. There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of fun things that fit in those verses. There's a lot we can fill our minds with that is very good and that will lift us up and that can be a part of where God is trying to take us. If we choose to say that's what we will fill our minds with. Now if we're going to do that, and part of the implication in what Paul says there in verse 8 is some filtering of our thoughts, isn't it? we all joke about it, garbage in, garbage out, but it's true. It's true in a computer, and it's true in the human brain. And if I want my thoughts to be the kinds of thoughts in verse 8, the kinds of thoughts that take me to a higher place, a higher level of living that God wants me to go to, then part of that is not just what I put in, part of it is also what I say is no longer going in here. And that may be all kinds of things, all kinds of sources. It may affect the websites I go to. It may affect what I choose to read. It may filter out some of the TV that I've been watching. What I listen to in the car on talk radio. The people I hang around with. All of us have people who are like the dogs and people like the cats. All of, every one of you can think of names right now and faces that are the most negative people you have ever seen. They could win the lottery and all they would do is bemoan how negative their life is. And they tear you right down with them. And you also can think of faces of people that even in the midst of some of the toughest times, they're talking good things. We know them 
we have to choose what's going into our minds. We have to make some choices. We have to turn on parental guidance for our websites and we don't have kids in the house. There's all kinds of things we can do to filter our lives. We know what takes our thinking in the wrong direction. It's being honest enough to say, I need to put up some walls. I need to put up some do not enter signs and obey them. And in that process, of course, then think of those good things. Part of that is clearly Scripture. We cannot ignore that or short-circuit that. How are we putting Scripture into our minds? And, and And I hope it needs to be, and I hope it is, way more than one sermon on one Sunday, one day a week. Whether that is listening to that to the car, whether that is listening to music that is based on Scripture, Christian radio, some some memorizing, a, a, a piece of Scripture in the morning, a daily reading plan. You can have it emailed to you. You can have it texted to you. There's all kinds of ways to help us take in even a little bit of Scripture every day. Memorize a little bit of it. Get a calendar that has a verse of a day. What will work for you, it's not just filtering out. It's replacing that with what is good. There's good shows to watch. There's good websites to go to. There's all kinds of good around us. There's good people around us. Do we build them into our week? Build them into our lives? Do we consciously say, I need to spend more time around these folks? And less time around these folks. We had a great Sunday school class this morning. I thoroughly enjoyed it. There was probably 30 of us in a circle talking. I was around good people who had good things to say. Uh, We have six small groups going on. It's a great way to be around people who have good things to say. They're honest people. They're not perfect people. But when I'm around them, I think higher. That's what the church is for. To be that source of that good thinking. And that's, I'll be honest with you, that's why I hope and pray you'll move beyond a worship service. You you get just a little bit of the good thinking. And if you move beyond that to connect in a small group, a class, a serving together, whatever, you, you get lifted up. And that's part of that changing that thinking. But it's not just examining our thoughts and doing some filtering and changing some sources. There's two other things we need to talk about. The second one is dealing with our desires differently. Because the reality is my desires and what those desires do to my emotions and my emotions and my thinking, those three things are very intertwined. And I can have all the intention of wanting to change my thinking. And I can be inputting Scripture into my life. But if I have desires in my life that are out of control, they are constantly going to be taking me in the wrong direction. And with that will go my thinking. I can't ignore those two things. 
all three that we're going to look at. They are just wound together. But desires is the second one. Turn over to Romans 8. I want to read three verses. Paul lays out here the challenge for us of choosing and the implications for our desires and our minds. Romans 8, 5 through 7. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. See how the two go together? But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Our desires make all the difference in the world. Now, I want to lay out for you my philosophy. You may not agree with it or not. I think at times the church has labeled all desires as bad. And I think that's a mistake. And I don't think it fits with Scripture. I think what Scripture says is that God made us the way we are, and that includes He made us with certain basic desires. He wired us up that way. He wired us up with desires for love, for companionship, for purpose. He gave us a sense of taste that desires those things which taste good. He gave us sight so we can see colors and sunsets and art and sculpture and beauty and appreciate it. He created us sexual beings with sexual desires. That's part of how He made us male and female. He created us with egos and a sense of self-worth. I don't think any of those desires are wrong. But what Paul recognizes in that Romans passage is that those desires can go in two different directions. For every desire which God created... Now think about this, because this is a huge light bulb if if you'll believe it. For every desire God created in us, with it, He created an appropriate, healthy way to satisfy that desire. And when we satisfy that desire in His designed way, it makes us thrilled to be alive and in awe of Him and His creation and how He put all this together. And we just stand back and we say, wow. But there is also the option that we can take that same desire and let it get out of control and take us in very unhealthy ways that end up, maybe after momentary pleasure, being destructive to ourselves and to others and creating very unhealthy situations. It's not the desire at its core that's the problem. It's how we choose to satisfy that desire. And that's why Paul challenges us in that Romans passage to say, who's in charge here? What direction are you taking your desires? Or as we would say in America, what direction are we allowing our desires to take us? Because part of our problem is that we've decided to say desires can go anywhere they want and we'll let them be in charge. 
versus us saying with our minds, this desire will go this way. Because it's how God designed it to work and be fulfilling. And if I let it go any other way, it will be self-destructive and destructive to everyone around me. So part of our thinking has to be looking at our desires. And how am I channeling my desires? Am I satisfying them as God ordained? And am I controlling my desires? And my goal is not to get political, but I just, my wife is concerned because my blood pressure is up. Well, part of it is this election. And, and, and I just lose it because this whole issue of, a, of an amendment on marriage is being presented as any desire is good, and who could say no to a desire? And how could you be so uncaring as to say you shouldn't satisfy your desire in a certain way? Carry that out. Is that okay for affairs? I desire. Is that okay for uh, drugs? I desire. Don't say no. That logic is so broken. And what is truth is a concept that God has said, I made you. And yes, I gave you certain desires, but here's how you satisfy them in fulfilling, positive, building up ways. And here's how they'll destroy you. And now I'm being told that if I say, we got to go God's way, I'm not caring. What could be more not caring than to watch a person and a society destroy itself. So we have to wrestle with this desire issue. And we have to wrestle with the concept that postmodernism says, do whatever feels good. Because it will take our minds in all the wrong direction. Well, there's one more issue. And it's a huge issue for our minds. And you were probably pretty comfortable with the last one. Most of you saying, yeah, go get them, Jim. Well, now I'm going to go to meddling. Because the other issue we have to talk about is a thing called fear and worry. Because as much as desires can take over our minds, so can fear and worry. And for a lot of us, I think that becomes an issue. Because we all know where we go. Something happens, we hear a comment, and it can be one phrase, can't it? And our minds hook onto that one thing that was said, maybe in passing, and we worry about it. And we worry about it, and we think about it. And all that might that mean, and boy, that person really doesn't like me, or oh this, and oh that, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it becomes this monster that takes over our mind, and all our thinking. And it's fear and worry. And Satan uses it all the time. Because he knows it will distract us from God, it will steal our joy, and it's like a cancer that takes over our mind. Because we're afraid and we're worried. 
And in our calm, rational moments, we realize that 99.9% .9 of those things we worried about were irrational and never came to be and probably weren't going to come to be. I, I, I'm preaching, I am the choir, okay? You're preaching the choir. I, one comment, and in my insecurity, it's like, oh, they don't like me. They want to fire me. They think I'm a terrible pastor. I mean, on and on it goes. And my mind's gone. Until somehow I have to take that back. Here's what Jesus said. Peace I leave with you. I, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives you. The world gives us worry and fear. Jesus said, I got something different for you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. We don't have to be consumed by worry and fear. Jesus promised, said, I can give you peace. And you're not going to find this peace in the world. What I have is very different. I have peace for you. Now, how do we defeat worry? How do we find this? Jesus says it's available. I, all I can tell you is what I've had to do. I, I, I don't know. I don't think it can be just empty words. I, you've heard that. I've had people say that to me. Well, just be brave. Or the great one is, well, just don't worry. Okay, we can go home now. Okay, don't worry. And that might work for five minutes or two. You hear the first comment on the door, at the, going out the door. And then it's like, oh shoot, I wasn't going to worry again. The facts drive out worry. I, I don't know how else to put it. I, I don't worry about a certain thing because I know some facts. I, I don't worry about this bonfire outside my house burning because I know I have a fire extinguisher or I have a hose right there. That fact makes me not need to worry. Uh, I see something in front of me. I don't worry because I know the brakes on my car work and I can stop in time. I don't need to worry. I remain calm. Does that make sense? Facts drive out worry. So if we need to find peace in our life, there are facts about Jesus that can drive out worry facts out of about God we celebrated one in communion there is a fact Jesus died on the cross and if he is my savior the fact is I don't have to worry whether or not God accepts me not because I'm good enough not because I had a perfect week but because he is my savior and he died for me that fact drives out worry I've listed three scriptures in here that I've had to memorize because I, I need them all the time. And I have to remind myself. One is John 3.16. But I want you to put your name in there. We, we can escape this if we just leave it for God so loved the world. Because us good warriors would say, yeah, but that doesn't include me. Well, obviously it does. So you need to put your name in there. For God so loved you. Your name. That he gave his only begotten son. That's that cross. But it's a statement of how much you matter to God. 
When you're facing something big, you have to remind yourself of this fact. You are important to God. The second one is Romans 8.28. This reassurance that in all situations, God is at work for those who love him. That doesn't mean God promises wonderful circumstances all the time. It does mean in any circumstance, God will be at work to bring good from it for you. That is a peace giver. Now, oftentimes, we don't see it. I regularly have debates with God, how in the world are you going to bring good out of this? And sometimes I get... a. It's, I get an attitude with God and it's almost the arms folded as I dare you to bring good out of this. Because I don't see any way he can bring good out of this. And he does. In ways that I never could have imagined. But I have to hold on to that verse when I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's promised he will. That fact drives out worry. There's one other longer passage. That's over in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. This is the passage for worriers. If you're a worrier, I know you're familiar with this verse. If you're not, I'm giving you your biggest Christmas present already. Because in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything. That's a big statement, especially to a worrier. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, take your worry to God. Present your requests to Him. And when you do all of that, verse 7, the result will be that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which is illogical, it doesn't make sense, but it can be yours. The peace of of God will guard your heart and your mind, your emotions and your thinking in Christ Jesus. Remember John 14, 27? In me you will have peace. That's how we find it. Going back to the God who's painting a masterpiece in us. The God who wants to take fear out of your equation and give you peace. But we have to let him paint the paintbrush. We've gone long. We're just going to pray. But I just, these were such important concepts and I didn't know how to split them. If we're going to get that mind where God can work with us and it doesn't derail us when we leave here. We've got to look at our thinking. And we've got to look at our desires. And we've got to look at our fears. Next week, we'll continue on in this process of how we become the person God designed us to be. Will you stand and pray with me, please? Father, thank you. Thank you that you designed us. Thank you that you want to make a masterpiece of each one of us. But we recognize we have to cooperate with you. We have to come to you. We have to give you control at our deepest core. And we have to look at our minds.
Just as we're going to look at other things we have to wrestle with, but that mind is so critical. Help us, Father. Help us. Come to you and think in transformed ways. In your son's name, amen.